Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. This morning, we are going to attempt to go through the whole chapter. And just by way of recap, we have been looking at the Torah from the perspective of meditative literature. We got that from Psalms chapter 1. In Psalms chapter 1, you read the psalmist saying, Upon your law I will meditate day and night. That word meditate in Hebrew is literally the word for growl or the word that a dove makes in the morning. That is supposed to be the picture of the believer who is planted, who is flourishing and growing someone who is constantly in the law, and as they are perusing, reading, thinking about, you hear them saying, huh, huh, or as a bear who growls as he eats, The last three weeks we have spent in Genesis chapter 3, we've looked at these three characters, and we've seen the pattern and the mold that they have shaped for us. The reason why we spent so much time on those three characters is because Genesis chapter 3 becomes the mold for how to understand the rest of the Hebrew Bible. We saw the woman, desire coming upon her. We saw this individual called the serpent, this slithery individual that appears all throughout the Hebrew Bible. And we saw man, who decides to abandon what God had set forward as right and go for wrong. In the Hebrew, that word is tov for right or good, and he went for ra, which is evil. That mold becomes the frame for how to understand the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Today, we're going to look at how those figures, those archetypal structures, appear in this story, in Genesis chapter 4. Next week, we're going to see how that structure also appears in the life of King David and his son Solomon. But for today, look with me in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. This is so fascinating. As you look at these two verses in Hebrew, there is so much meaning in there. These words here, what what makes them meaningful is the reference and appearance of particular words. For example, this story happens after the fall. It happens after Adam and Eve have decided to go for the knowledge of Tov and Ra, the knowledge of good and evil. The story comes at the heels of the fall being cast out of the garden in Eden. And we read in chapter 3, that they land on the east of Eden. After the fall, the atom bomb that has taken place, something fascinating happens here in chapter 4, verse 1. The man knew his wife, Eve. Stop and think about that. The man who was in paradise, who knew perfection, who was able to glimpse upon the throne of God and be before Yahweh's presence. The word there, knew his wife, is the same exact word that Yahweh used in verse 22 of chapter 3. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, 
to know good and evil. It is an aspect of intimate, full knowledge and understanding. That type of understanding is happening here. And think about, think about the drama that's happening. Here is the man who knows his wife, has seen her be the temptress, has fallen prey to her temptation, has seen her fall from grace. And the beautiful thing is, knowing that, what happens? You Bible students who have gone through the Bible know that when that phrase is used, it's a euphemism for the intercourse within marriage. Scripture is very interesting in the way that it hides these delicate details, but yet gives you full light of what's happening. Rather than what we read from David when he has um, sexual contact with Bathsheba, the phrase used there is, he went into her. Here, you see something very different. He knew her. He was in contact with her. It's a reference, yet once more, to the garden, where at the end of chapter 2, we read that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here is the fault of Eve fully before her husband, and yet he still chose to be with her. It's a beautiful picture. This portrait continues to evolve. So what happens after this, this continual fruition of marriage? What happens? She conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. This is interesting because in Hebrew, the literal translation of that is, I have bought, purchased, or gotten man, the Lord. This phrase right here in Hebrew is much debated among commentators, and it's a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. When you take the literal meaning of it, the question comes down to what what's going on and who's talking here. If you take the literal meaning, based on Genesis 3.15, the hope that will come, let me read that to you, Genesis 3.15, The curse that is put upon the serpent, there is hope for humanity when we read and God saying this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There was a sense of expectation and hope. There was a sense of there will come from me a deliverer. The verbiage here in Hebrew seems that Eve is looking upon her son, Cain, as that deliverer. And what's fascinating is there's this this phrase used in Hebrew that is supposed to indicate what is the subject or what is the individual or what is the concept that is doing the action. It is prefaced by two letters. Here, when we read, I have gotten a man with the, if you notice that, it's actually in parentheses, it's um, in italics, because it doesn't appear in the original. I have gotten a man, that word with probably should be taken out and instead put the Lord. This is interesting. This is very interesting. There is this perspective that's happening that Eve is looking upon her son as this is the chosen one. Cain is the one that's going to save us from the serpent, from the curse. He's the one that's going to come and deliver us. I believe that perspective is actually the correct one because as you begin to see the rest of chapter 4, you begin to see something evolving within Cain. It's important to understand the drama and the tension that's happening here. So we we learn of Cain. And now look in verse 2. 
And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Do you notice what's different here between verse 1 and verse 2? Between the way that Cain is introduced and the way that Abel is introduced? In verse 1, you read, she conceived and gave birth to Cain. In verse 2, and again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Why is the conception not mentioned there? What's going on? It's trying to highlight the pride that came upon Eve in the conception, in the reception of Cain. There's something else that I want to draw your attention to in verse 2. Abel. I almost fell out of my chair when I got this. Um, I was like, oh my gosh. In Hebrew, the name Abel is Hevel. Okay, so what's the big deal? Well, in Ecclesiastes, when you read the author of Ecclesiastes saying, all is vanity, 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 the word vanity in Hebrew is the same exact name, word, Hevel. It is Hevel. The author in Ecclesiastes is picking up this theme, Hevel, that which is vacuous, it's brief, it's here and it's gone. So here, when you read and when we're introduced to Abel, you know what's happening. Oh, whoa, this is an individual that's only going to be here briefly. The author of Ecclesiastes takes that idea and then just enlarges it. It's beautiful. Once more, Genesis is the mold. It's the structure for the rest of the Hebrew Bible. As we go through this chapter, you're going to see other hyperlinks, other aspects that link back to Genesis that are in other portions of Scripture. Two brothers. Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. Notice what's happening here. Notice what the narrator is showing. Who else was a cultivator of the ground? Adam. That's the same word. It's trying to show you who's the one that was receiving the hand down, the blessing, the one who was promised, hey, this is just like the first Adam. Hevel, Abel, was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain tilled the ground. He served the ground. He was a man of the ground, just like his father. This is remarkable. You know what else is remarkable? Where else in the near future in Genesis do you read about two brothers? That one seems to be receiving the blessing, but the younger brother comes up. If you said... Jacob and Esau, you're absolutely correct. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 27, there's something I want you to see. Let me read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Genesis 25, verse 27, you see something so interesting. And the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. If that's all the description we got, that'd be interesting. But it wouldn't be profound. Notice the next description that happens. A man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Those little details are not there by coincidence. It's supposed to draw your attention as a reader, as someone who's meditating, who's looking at the text carefully, back to where did I first see this interaction? Here in Genesis 4. So you see two brothers. You see one that is in the mold of his father, one who was expected and hoped for, one whose mother said, I have gotten, or the way that that is translated in other passages, I have purchased a man, the Lord. There was hope and expectation for Cain. Verse 3. So it happened in the course of time, that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first fruit of his flock 
and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Notice the detail that was given about Cain and who Cain was. And now notice the detail that's given about Abel and his offering. All we read about Cain and his offering is that it is the fruit of the ground. What we read about Abel is that on his part also he brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Yahweh had regard or the word there is he saw, he looked upon Abel and on his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. God didn't see it. God didn't look upon Cain. So Cain became very angry. It's interesting. That means hot. He became very hot. He started boiling. (laughs) And his countenance fell. I want to take a moment here and ask you a question. The text does not give us any reason for why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected. That's important to understand here. There are a lot of Thoughts and theories for why this offering was accepted and the other offering was not accepted. Some of the theories state that, well, when Cain brought fruit, it was a disregard of the sentence that God had given because it was a fruit that condemned mankind and Cain right here is kind of just offering fruit. The reason why that theory can't work is because when you read in Leviticus, there is actually an offering of first fruits unto the Lord, a produce offering. There's no clear understanding for why Abel's offering was accepted and why Cain's was rejected. I make that statement because it's important to understand the drama here and the application for you and for me. How do you, how do I, how do we react when circumstances in life don't go as we think they should or as we hoped they would or as how we think that this is what's right? Why isn't it working out for me? How do we react Are we, can we, like Job, say, though you slay me, I will still hope in him? Or like the psalmist, but as for me, I will wait continually and will praise you yet more and more. Is that our attitude? Or is our attitude or posture of the heart that of, I'm going to make it work for me? I don't understand why I got a no, so let me keep working until I get a yes. I don't understand why this door was closed. The phrase that is often used in culture is, when God closes the door, he opens a window. How do we react when we have moments that go against what we think is right or what we put our hopes on? How emotionally intelligent are we as believers to take our upsets, to take our depressions, and to realize from the perspective of the cross, God is still in control. This might be out of my control, but God is still sovereign. And I will choose to put my eyes upon Him rather than on my circumstances. I will humble myself and let God be God. Or do we take things into our own hands? You know, the New Testament has this beautiful story um, in honor of temptation. Uh, Antony said, George, you can teach out of any book in the Bible except Matthew. 
So in honor of the temptation, I just couldn't help myself. There's a reference in Matthew that I want to share with you. You know the story. You know the story of Jesus. In Matthew 15, there's a Canaanite woman who says, Son of David, heal my daughter. And you know the story where Jesus says, It's not fitting. It's not fitting for the food of the children to be given to the dogs. Oh, ouch. Think about that. Think about the the ego check that happens in that. Just called her a dog. What would happen if you're like, God, please heal me. And the person who you know is a living heathen sinner is is getting blessed and is in the, the strength of health. And you're the one that isn't getting healed and you're being a faithful servant. Ouch. Lord, why is this happening? You know the response. You know the response of the woman. And she says, and yet even the dogs receive crumbs from the table. There's a counter story to that. A couple of chapters prior to that. Jesus is hanging out with his friends. He's eating among the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the down and outs of society, those who did not fit the righteous mode of the Pharisees. And you know the story. The Pharisees come and they ask, Don't, doesn't your rabbi, your master know who these people are? And you remember the story that Jesus said. It is not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. You know, that story is in parallel to Matthew 15. Why? Because it was just as degrading for a Pharisee to realize, I am sick and I do need a physician. As it is for that woman to say, okay, but yet I'll still receive of you. The gospel is insulting. Why? Because it tells us that we are dead in our trespasses, that we are unable to save ourselves and need a savior. And it is only at the foot of the cross and surrender to who Christ is that you and I can have salvation. That is striking to an ego that says you can be and do whatever you want. How do we react in these circumstances and times when things don't make sense? My prayer is that we would, like Job, say, though he strike me, yet will I have hope in him. Look with me now to verse 6 of Genesis chapter 4. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There is so much detail here that I'm just not going to give it justice in this quick overview. Notice the drama. Cain is here, hot, very hot, boiling, angry. Yahweh comes and asks Cain, why are you angry? What is that supposed to jog our memories of? You remember the story in the previous chapter. Adam and Eve just disobeyed God, and God comes with a question, where are you? Here, we see this question again. God questioning, why are you angry? as if God doesn't know. And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, that word well in Hebrew is tov. As a Hebrew reader, you're supposed to go back to Genesis 3 and realize, oh, hey, this here is Cain's moment. This here is Cain's opportunity to choose between tov, that which is good, or raw, that which is bad. If you do tov, if you do good, 
will not look at those two words there in italics again. Your countenance be lifted up. In Hebrew, the way that should probably be read is, will you not be exalted? If you do well, will you not be exalted? And if you do not do well, if you do not do good, sin is lying at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is very interesting. I spent a long time doing research in Hebrew here. And one of the great things about Scripture is you can try to twist it, you can try to manipulate it, or you can just let Scripture do what Scripture does. And when you just let Scripture unfold in the way that it does, it's more beautiful than any theory you try to squeeze in there. So here's what's interesting. Sin is lying at the door. Where else do we meet a villainous, conniving character in the previous chapter in the form of the serpent. There, it's identified as a serpent. Here, sin is identified as the villain. What I spent a lot of time in is that word lying. It is the word rovets. Certain translations translate that word lying as crouching. The image, if you take crouching, is that of a beast waiting to pounce, waiting to take control. So if you read it from that perspective, but um, if you do well, Will, uh, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and, and it seems as if it's ready to pounce upon you. It's, that's the temptation. Oh, that, that word picture, because it can be translated as crouching, it should be, you know, you're, you're beginning to see this picture evolve of a beast. But the truth is, more often than not, this word is translated properly as lying at the door. So I'm looking, I'm taking a look at, at different dictionaries, I'm looking at different translations, and then this just clicks like a key, a key in place. And this is what's beautiful. It is this dual picture. It is this dual picture of something that is Lying, laying down at the door. Its desire is for you. That phrase is coming from the previous chapter, and it's the picture of the desire that comes upon woman for man. It has sexual connotations. There is this thing lying at the door whose desire is for you. The word there is used purposely because even though it seems docile, even though it seems like it's just lying down, truth be told, the venom goes deeper than what you can see or imagine. I had our brother Alan read Proverbs chapter 7. Turn with me there because that's the theme that the writer of that Proverbs actually had in mind when he's talking about stay away from the wanton woman. Stay away from the lady who's mischievous. Stay away from the adulteress. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 7, starting in verse 21. With her abundant persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she drives him to herself. He suddenly follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in feathers to the discipline of an ignorant fool until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare and he does not know that it will cost him his soul. So now, my son, 
Listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart go astray into her ways. Do not wander into her paths. For many are the slain whom she has taken down. And numerous are all those killed by her. The ways of Sheol are in her house, descending to the chambers of death. So the reality is that word lying there, giving this picture of a prostitute, it's proper. But as Proverbs chapter 7 gives more light, oh, it is not going to be a good time. This decision will lead you further astray and in the end to death. The Puritan Ralph Venning said something so interesting. Did men consider what they are doing when they sin, they would abhor it. For who would rush to his own ruin? Who would drink poison? None but fools or madmen. Did men consider that the wages of sin is death, that wrath and hell attend sin, they would surely be more wary. Another Puritan, Thomas Brooks, said this, Satan with ease puts fallacies upon us by his golden baits, and then he leads us and leaves us in a fool's paradise. He promises the soul honor and pleasure and profit, but pays the soul with the greatest contempt, shame, and loss that can be. One more Puritan quote. I mean, these are rich. The precious substance promised by sin ends in a pernicious shadow, and the spoils we get by sin only spoil. Sin promises like a god, but pays like a devil. Sin's performance is altogether contrary to its promises. It promises gold, and pays dross. I love that. That's what's happening here. Sin is lying. There's this temptation. This is Cain's moment to choose tov, good, over raw, evil. This is it. Cain, at this point, had the opportunity to change the course of history. What his father lost, here he had the opportunity to amend, to redeem it. But you know what happened. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Look in verse 8. Then Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and it happened when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. There's this play on words that's happening in verse 8 and in verse 7. In verse 7, Yahweh tells Cain, If you do well, will you not be lifted up? Cain, in verse 8, What does he do against Abel? He rises up against him. Rather than going God's way, rather than choosing humility, rather than realizing, hey, my offering before Yahweh wasn't acceptable, so I will humble myself and do better. Rather than choosing that path, what does he do? I'm having it my way. Forget, forget doing it God's way Let me go forward and do in the way that seems right before my eyes. In addition to this drama, to this perspective, if you take a a step back and you actually look at this artistically, the sons of Adam themselves represent two paths. Abel as the path of honoring God and choosing God. Cain as the path of doing your way and your will. That archetypal structure 
is what happens all throughout the Hebrew Bible. Constantly, you're going back to this theme of, oh, oh, this person's actually doing really good, and then fails. Here's the hope. Here's the hope of Israel. We have it. The creation of almost an Edenic situation, and then dropping the ball. It's a foreshadow of the Adam, the son of Adam, who would come and redeem what the original Adam lost. All of this is a foreshadow of what is to come. But constantly this pattern gets repeated over and over and over again. For you and for me, it is not enough as Christians to know good theology, sound doctrine. I love it. More than anything else, I love diving deep into how it is that God can be sovereign, omnipotent, but yet the perspective of free will be there. How how does this work? How does culpability work? How does God, being God on the throne, knowing the end from the beginning, coincide with this perspective of freedom? I love learning about the historical development of theology throughout the ages. I love that. But none of that means anything if my walk with God is not honoring before him. That last song that we sung just caused me to reflect. It is not enough for us Christians to know scripture, to admire the beautiful artistic work of scripture, if we are not incorporating that into the character of our hearts. Truly being sons and daughters of Christ. There is such a need for us to reflect upon the sin of our heart, to realize, I am a sinner. Even as a redeemed Christian, I have this old flesh in me. Another Puritan said this phrase, there is nothing in the life but that was first in the heart. Strife in your hearts. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. There is the source of sin and the fountain of folly as the seeds of all creatures were in the chaos. So all the sins in the heart. Well, then look to the heart. Keep that clean if you would have the life free from the disorder and distempers. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. I love that. One more quote. But intimately acquire with thy own heart, and thou wilt the better know his design against thee who takes his method of tempting from the inclination and postures of the heart. As a general walks about the city and views it well and then raises his batteries where he has the greatest advantage, so doth Satan compass and consider the Christian in every part before he tempts. There is such a need for us to examine our hearts of sin and to pray the prayer that David prayed. Examine my heart if there be any hidden sin in me. I mean, think about how profound that is. Sin that is in me that I'm not even aware of. Our beloved pastor has has made mention of how the doctrines of grace have been forwarded in these recent decades. But the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the conclusion, the result of these glorious transcendent doctrines, the perseverance of the saints, also known as the doctrines of sanctification, that is where the rubber meets the road for theology for you and for me. It is not just knowledge, but it is what 
How am I owning my sanctification before the Lord? And the beautiful thing is this. When you and I begin to make that our focus, our need for the Spirit to come upon our lives grows. Because we realize we're unable to do it without His help. There is such a need for us to realize, I have two options before me. I can do it God's way and honor, even when it doesn't make sense to me. Or I can go at it my way. What was true for Cain, what was true for Adam, is true for you and is true for me today. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Verse 9 of chapter 4. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What's happening again? In chapter 3, you see God coming and asking one question. In this subsequent chapter, you see God asking two questions. It keeps growing. What's also interesting is look at how Cain responds to God's inquiry compared to the way that Abel, I'm sorry, Adam and Eve responded to God's inquiry. When God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? They respond and they're transparent and they say, we heard you and we hid. How does Cain respond? Where is your brother Abel? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This this avowment of loyalty to Yahweh, this you're beginning to see a growth of corruption. As the narrative and structure begins and starts to take off, you're seeing just a change. Same mold, but a change in perspective. Wickedness is growing. You see also here the first murder, the introduction of death, slain. Verse 10, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now, cursed are you from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Notice what's happening here. To his father, to Adam, you read that the curse will fall upon the ground and that it will produce thorns and thistles. Here, to Adam's son, Cain, the earth will not even produce thorns and thistles. It's just not going to give anything to you. The second thing I want you to look at in this verse, what is God's designation for Cain? He is to be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. That is important for what's going to happen later on in the story. Keep that in your mind. Verse 13. When this judgment comes upon Cain, notice how Cain responds. Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, You have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Second time that phrase is used. And it will be that whoever finds me will kill me. How interesting that Cain is fearful of receiving the very same thing that he gave to his brother. Do you notice that? We would think that perpetrators of heinous sins would realize that as this same level of sin comes upon your life, you should just realize you get what you deserve. More often than not, as you dive into the psychology of serial killers, and I know this because of my wife, 
She swears she, uh, she was a FBI agent before she met me. Please pray for her. These individuals, perpetrators of these heinous crimes, are themselves oftentimes fearful of those things coming upon them. Cain knows full well that he has lost the privilege of the ground. He has lost the presence of Yahweh. But what irks him the most is that he will receive what is rightly due to him. That's what fears. That's what fear is prominent upon his his heart and his mind. Look in verse 15. So Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain so that no one who found him would strike him. How interesting. When judgment was rightly due for such a heinous crime, what did God show to Cain? Mercy. It's a picture of what happened in the previous chapter. On the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. And what happened after they ate of it? They lived another day. And they continued another month. And they continued another year. And they continued another decade. And they continued several more centuries. Mercy. God also appointed something for Adam and Eve. We read in chapter 3, Verse 21, that God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Here, in Genesis 4, verse 15, Yahweh appoints a sign for Cain as well with mercy. The interesting thing is that word sign, the first time that it appears, is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, with reference to the heavens. In Genesis 1, verse 14, we read, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days and for years. As you're reading this, you think, wait a minute. Wow, this was very obvious. What God put upon Cain was something that was so obvious that it was also in the heavens. This was not, you could not mistake Cain. You would know whenever Cain walked, don't touch that guy. Don't touch him. Because look at the sign that's upon him. There is mercy that is poured upon Cain. Verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh. Same thing that happened to his mother and his father and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. There's a lot going on here. Where do we read of a similar phrase? If you said verse 24, chapter 3, you'd be right. Notice how the phraseology for when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden looks like. In verse 24 of chapter 3, So he drove the man out. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Again in verse 23, Therefore Yahweh, God, sent him out of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, their prodigy, were hanging out in Eden. They were just outside of the garden. Eden, the location of Eden, is where they were. Here, in verse 16, you read that Cain completely left Eden. Never mind the garden. Never mind the neighborhood of the garden. He left and he settled 
in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Do you remember the phrase I told you, keep this in mind? Keep this in mind. This happened twice. Why? Because look in verse 17. Then Cain knew his wife. Do you remember how the story began in verse 1 of chapter 4? Now the man knew his wife Eve. Oh, it's, it's a reproduction of what just happened. So here we see the story continuing. However, as we're going to read, as the story continues, it takes a bad turn. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Oh, is he the next Cain? Look at what else it says in verse 17. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. What was God's judgment upon Cain? And what did Cain also say his judgment was? He was supposed to be a wanderer, a vagrant. What do you see him doing here in 17? Oh, I'm not going to wander. I'm not going to be vagrant. I'm going to be settled. The Hebrew is yashav. I am going to yashav here, and I'm going to build a city. There is something very interesting in the phrase that's used. Why does it say that he built a city? He could have said he founded a city. The narrator wants to draw your attention to somebody else who was built. Remember, in Genesis chapter 2, God built an azer for Adam. As we talked about almost three weeks ago, Eve was not formed of dirt. She was formed of man. And the word that is used there is she was built. God built a woman for man. Here you see man building a city for himself. In the same way that the woman was going to be Adam's helper, Cain is saying, oh, I'm going to make my own helper, the city. As you begin to follow the thread of the city throughout the Hebrew Bible, what you find is that cities more often than not are sources of evil. The shadow, the upstream, the source for cities is here. What is very interesting is that when you compare Genesis to literature that was written during this time, so now we're going to mythology, we're going to ancient narratives, you see that cities were actually gifts of gods, gifts where man who was indigenous, who was Bedouin, could now come and settle. In Genesis, that myth is turned on its head. And it shows you cities were not a good thing. Cities, the origin of cities was from a murderer. There's a contrast in the way the world sees economics, commerce, and in the way that the church is supposed to look at commerce and economics. There's supposed to be a difference. Verse 18. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Methusael, and Methusael was the father of Lamech. And Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jubal. He was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. 
These details are all very important. Cain starts a line. This line goes forward. Cain rebels against the judgment that God gives him. One of his descendants, Lamech, in Hebrew, it's the same exact words, the same words as melech, which is where you get the English word for king. So a lot of commentators have seen that the narrator of Genesis is trying to play with language here. Lamech, Lamech, is now taking upon himself the ability to rewrite God's prescription for marriage. So his great-great-grandfather decided to go against God's judgment. Lamech here goes against God's mold for marriage. Fascinating. There's these two individuals that I want to show you today. In verse 20 and 21, descendants of Cain. And Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Will you turn with me to Job chapter 21? The more that I spend time in Job, the more that I am just like shocked at what's happening here. How Job is such a heavy book. There, there's so much detail in here and it runs parallel to everything that has happened in the Hebrew Bible. Um, you know the beloved series, the Chronicles of Narnia? You know the, how many books there are in the Chronicles of Narnia? There's seven books. I was so intrigued to find out the order in which these seven books were written. So you have books two, four, five written, and then you have book three and seven written. I'm sorry, six written, and then you have book seven. What is interesting is that the sixth book that was written was actually the first book. When C.S. Lewis finished his, his epic tale, he realized, wait a minute, I need to write an introduction here. And the sixth book in the series actually became book one. And you see the entire series in Book one, Job is very similar to that. Job comes later, but it's so fascinating because it has all the detail of everything that will evolve in the Hebrew Bible. Job chapter 21, look in verse 7. Why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful, Their seed is established with them in their presence and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from dread and the rod of God is not on them. His ox mates and does not fail. His cow calves and do not miscarry. They send forth their little ones into the flock and their children skip about. Verse 12. They lift up the tambourines and harp and are glad to make the sound of the pipe. What is that a reference to again? Genesis chapter 4. The author of Job is picking up these themes. You only find two books besides Genesis where the lyre and the harp are together. Job and Daniel. That's it. You never find these two instruments together and anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. 
Well, the second one that I want to draw your attention to, and this is where we'll end, was the first son that was born to Ada. Genesis chapter 4, verse 20 says, And Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. Why would the author want to include that little detail? Where else in the Hebrew Bible do we read about tent dwellers and people being pierced in the head and saviors? Where else does this come about? Well, if you're thinking of judges, you would be correct. What? In Judges chapter 4, you read this strange story. The book of Judges could very well be termed as the history of the dark ages for the nation of Israel. In the beginning of this dark age where the generation after Joshua and the elders who lived with Joshua pass away, you have a generation that forget about God. And now you have the cycle of honoring God, falling away from God, getting oppressed, saying, God, we're sorry, we're sorry, and the cycle going on and on and on and on. The writer of Judges, very interestingly, inserts this story before all of Judges goes forward. In Judges chapter 4, verse 10, you read something very interesting. Then Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. There's war that's happening. The judge Barak has come with Deborah, the prophetess, and they're going to war. But they're not the victors. They're not the ones who win war in this particular setting. Who is Now Eber, the Canaanite, had separated himself from the Canaanites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. You're given that little detail. Oh, interesting. So you have the army of Israel going and getting ready for a fight. And then there's this guy who's hanging out in his tent. Why is he hanging out in his tent if Israel is actually in the land? They're taking in houses. What's going on? As the story continues, you're introduced to the captain of the counter army by the name of Sisera. He goes... And he goes to fight against Deborah and Barak. And what ends up happening? His armies are trashed. He's on the run. And as he's running, where does he go? To the tent of Eber. However, does Eber become the hero? Hey, I just just realized that rhymes. Eber is not the hero. Look in verse 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Eber, the Canaanite. Whose tent is it? It's not Eber's. Jael. It's her custom. It's her people. To the tent of Jael, the wife of Eber, the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Eber, the Canaanite, And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her tent, and she covered him with a rug. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened the bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and she covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be, if anyone comes and asks of you and says, Is there a man here that you shall say no? Then Jael, Eber's wife, took a tent peg and placed a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple 
and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. This lady is actually a descendant of Cain's line. You see this referenced again in the song of Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5, verse 24. Look at how Ja'al is addressed. Most blessed of women is Ja'al, the wife of Eber the Canaanite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. Those little details are not an accident. The narrators, the authors are trying to draw this example for you of saying, whoa, there is a lot going on in this text. For you and for me, what can we walk away with in this week? It is this. There is before us choices, options. Our lives are more fundamentally made up not of actions but of choices that we make, decisions that we decide to say, I will do A or I will decide to do B. Many of us have seen the repercussions of sinful decisions, disobedient decisions. There have been opportunities like Cain before you to do something that honors God. Generations after you will depend upon your decision and obedience to God. And like Cain, many of us have chosen to say, I will have it my way, not God's way. The beauty of the Lord is that even in those situations of lostness, even in those situations of disobedience, God redeems. God forgives. And the beautiful thing is this. In God's mercy, even sinful actions God uses for His glory if we would just honor Him and submit to Him. Ja'al is one example of that. My prayer is that as this week goes forward for you, that you would remember, honor the Lord. Sin is tempting, but its payment is not worth it. Let's pray. Father, oh, teach us to be wise. Spirit, please make yourself known upon our hearts so that we would be aware when we grieve you. Lord, I ask that our desire would be to be pleasing to you. And for some of us, maybe it's been years since we actually considered, am I honoring you, Lord? I ask that this week would be a moment of reflection, a moment of honoring you, a moment of saying, Father, I give myself to you yet again. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the family and communion that you give us. Walk with us. Father, be honored by our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.